guns, guns, guns. What did our founders intend with the writing of the Second Amendment? We'll find out today. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Barely. The Oklahoma City bomber who killed 168 made it clear what a lot of Americans now embrace. Guns are synonymous with freedom. He started an ascendant political crusade, and as Jeffrey Tubin writes in his new book, Homegrown, about that attack, that Timothy McVeigh, as a member of the KKK, uh, was an outlier. But today we see the wave he began. The Allen, Texas mall bomber wore a patch with the abbreviation for right-wing death squad. Popular with the Proud Boys, the Second Amendment is. As New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg writes, mass shootings are increasingly part of the background noise in a country that's coming apart at the seams. Representative Jamie Raskin points out it's become common to hear Republicans echo McVeigh's theory of the Second Amendment. Inciting the Second Amendment, society is allowing itself to be terrorized. McVeigh's views are now those of much of the Republican Party. But what is the intent of the Second Amendment to the people who actually created it? Today, our 2023 may be remembered as the year in American history as one in which our culture has been defined as one of mass shootings. They are not rare, but are disgustingly routine. The U.S. is seeing, on average, more than one mass killing weekly. As of the 7th of May 2023, there have been 202 mass shootings defined as involving at least four people killed or injured by firearms, excluding the shooter, since the beginning of the year. It has become a widely held, clearly erroneous, yet firm belief that the Second Amendment to our Constitution guarantees an individual's right to own any type of firearm. This imagined right has become worshipped as the killer of 168 innocent people in Oklahoma was one of the first to openly believe that guns are synonymous with freedom, or at least to express it. The idea that the Second Amendment guarantees the right of an individual to own a gun is a fraud, according to the late Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger. It is certainly not what the author of the Second Amendment, James Madison, ever intended when he wrote it for inclusion into our Constitution. Well, our guest today will be able to answer some of these confusing beliefs. Our guest is Carl T. Bogus, who has a new article on History News Network, going along with a new book called Madison's Militia, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment. And the article is titled, Why Did Madison Write the Second Amendment? It's, he is professor of law at Roger Williams University School of Law. He teaches torts, evidence, products, liability, antitrust, and other courses. He's held visiting positions at the Rutgers, Camden, Drexel, and George Washington University Law Schools. Professor Bogus, thanks so much for being with us today and keeping democracy alive. This is certainly a big issue. It's wonderful to be with you today, Bert. Professor Bogus has written and spoken extensively about torts and, and the civil justice system, gun control, and the Second Amendment, and political ideology. He's author of a whole bunch of books, William F. Bugley Jr., and the Rise of American Conservatism, and Why Lawsuits Are Good for America, Disciplined Democracy, Big Business, and the Common Law. And he's editor of the Second Amendment in Law and History, Historians and Constitutional Scholars on the Right to Bear Arms. In addition to many professional journalists, his writings have appeared in newspapers, including the New York Times, USA Today, LA Times, the Boston Globe, Philadelphia Inquirer, Washington Times, and the Providence Journal in The Nation, American Prospect, American Conservative, and Tikkun magazines, and on the National Review and CNN websites. And in his spare time, I have no idea. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> I play too much chess in my spare time, but that's what I do. Oh, my God, that stuff intimidates the heck out of me. <laughs> anyway, the actual reason Madison wrote the Second Amendment is, is surprising. It's going to be surprising. His genuine intent 
would probably not be appreciated by many today as it is, as Professor Bogus will explain. Well, thanks again for being with us. What was your motivation for writing and publishing this book now, at this moment in our history? Well, this has been a topic that I have long been interested in and have long studied. I wrote a 99-page law review article titled The Hidden History of the Second Amendment in 1998, in which I set forth the thesis that is the central thesis of my book, Madison's Militia, same subtitle, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment. And the article got a lot of attention for a law review article when it came out in 1998. It's been the most cited thing I've ever written. And a historian at the University of North Carolina, a guy named Don Higginbotham, who I never knew, um, but who was the reputed to be the expert on military affairs in 18th century America and colonial America and, uh, and Revolutionary War America. He said of, of my article, and this is something that I, I quite treasure, he talked about what's called law office history. And law office history is a pejorative. <laughs> law office history is... Lawyers go back into history, they find some quote that somebody said that seems to favor some position they advocate today, and they rip it out of context, they don't really understand why that person said it, in what context they said it, and they bring it back and then they present it as evidence for their position. That's called law office history. <laughs> and Higginbotham said there are a lot of lawyers who've written a lot of stuff about the Second Amendment, and it's all law office history, with mm-hmm. one exception. Carl Bogus has really contextualized his thesis about the Second Amendment. It's an important thesis, needs to be taken seriously, and is worthy of we historians studying it. And so I have looked forward to historians doing additional research to either prove or disprove my thesis. And to my amazement, it never really happened. So uh, while my article got a fair amount of attention, it didn't really get much attention from professional historians, and it didn't get the kind of supplemental research that Higginbotham hoped Mm. it would get. Mm. And so, well, finally I said, you know what? I'm going to have to do it myself. I'm going to have to roll up my sleeves, go back, and do the additional research myself. And that is what prompted me to write the book. The book is an enormous enhancement of my original thesis in terms of evidence and and, um, supporting context. Well, it does appear from reading your book that you had a good time writing it, I must say. (laughs) You seem to enjoy it. That's a good thing. You write that when, on June 8, 1789, James Madison took to the floor of the House of Representatives to propose a collection of constitutional amendments, now it's all brand new, some of which he said, maybe called a Bill of Rights, you say he faced a steep climb. That Bill of Rights, of course, is now enshrined as the very essence of American freedoms. Why did he perceive it to be a steep climb? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. And um, you're right, I had a good time writing the book because history is so colorful. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of great historical stories that I found and and. Uh, related in the book, and, and this was this is one of them. So what happened was this. There had been a battle over whether the Constitution should be ratified, and James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, George Washington, they were what we today call Federalists with a small f, Yes. and they wanted the Constitution to be ratified. Uh, they were in favor of a of a strong na- a strong national government. The, the the Confederation under the Articles of Confederation had been a disastrously weak government. The federal government was really impotent. They wanted a stronger um, national government, and they were opposed by anti-federalists mm-hmm. who uh, did not want a strong national government and were kind of you know state rights types. Uh huh. And um, in this battle over whether to ratify the Constitution or not, the anti-federalists raised as an objection to the Constitution. It wasn't their only objection, but it was turned out to be one of their more popular objections. 
that it did not have a Bill of Rights or a Declaration of Rights. Uh, as uh, some state constitutions had had, um, didn't have that. And so they made, a, they made a, um, a big deal of the fact it didn't have a Bill of Rights and therefore it shouldn't be ratified until a Bill of Rights was added. The Federalists won. Yes. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an overwhelming victory, but they won. And in that process of that fight, Madison who had himself opposed a Bill of Rights, promised he would write one. And mm. when he got elected to Congress, he had to fulfill that promise, even though he himself wasn't that enthusiastic about a Bill of Rights. He had objections. First, he thought what he called parchment barriers, that's uh, rights written down on paper, mm -hmm. uh, weren't potent. Mm -hmm. They were just ignored when people wanted to ignore them. He thought rights were better protected through the structure of government, and he had been one of the key, probably the key architects of that structure in the Constitutional Convention. That was first. And second, he believed that if you wrote down any list of rights, you're going to leave off things. And then people will argue that isn't the right because it's not on the list. So he had been opposed to a Bill of Rights, but he had promised to write one and attempt to get Congress to propose one to the states. And when he got to Congress, what he discovered, he probably knew it before he actually got to Congress, he was in New York, got to New York, was the Federalists didn't particularly want a Bill of Rights for the reasons that Madison didn't want a Bill of Rights. They had opposed the Bill of Rights originally. And the Anti-Federalists weren't, which, which by the way made up, the Anti-Federalists made up a tiny fraction of Congress. I don't know if they would today. It seems like <laughs> no, today they probably today they'd be much larger, definitely much larger. But they were a tiny fraction. Nobody had to pay any attention to them really. But even they weren't interested in a Bill of Rights as a Bill of Rights. It had been an excuse not to ratify the Constitution. And now they said, well, Congress shouldn't propose a Bill of Rights. Um, we ought to have a new a new convention. They wanted they wanted a new constitutional convention to kind of un unwind the original Constitution. So nobody was really interested in the Bill of Rights, and everybody was busy setting up a new government. And they didn't really have time. They had, to, they had a zillion things to do in terms of confirming Washington's appointments to key positions and, and creating a budget and, and uh, deciding how the federal courts would be organized and many, many, many other things. Uh, they didn't want to do that. And one congressman said, and this reflected the view of many, you know, the Constitution's brand new. It's like a ship on a shakedown cruise. Before we amend it, we should have some experience with it. So, really, nobody was enthusiastically in favor of a Bill of Rights. Madison had been committed to try to get one through Congress, but it was a steep, up, a, a, a steep uphill climb because nobody was with him on this, at least enthusiastically. And it's, from my reading, it seems like one of the concerns that the, well, that many people, anti-federalists in, in particular, were concerned that if it was just this parchment barrier, that it might perhaps unintentionally give the federal government the power to subvert the slave system by disarming yeah. the militia. Uh, yeah. That, yeah, I don't think people are, are so much uh, aware of that, that they were concerned about the federal government's ability to subvert subvert the slave system by disarming the militia. Was that his intent, yep. or was it really the opposite? I'm sorry, what's the last thing you said, Bert? What, what, was, that, was, was that his intent, or was it really the opposite, that he, that he wanted to subvert the slave system? Madison wanted to protect the slave system. He, he was a slave owner from 
uh, Virginia, from Eastern Virginia. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so were George Washington and Thomas Jefferson oh, yeah. and Patrick Henry and, and John Marshall and on and on. Um, he wanted to protect the slave system. And maybe more importantly, he wanted to eliminate this bugaboo, this kind of monster under the bed fear that Patrick Henry had raised about Congress soon to be controlled by a more rapidly growing North and mm-hmm. a North becoming increasingly abolitionist, seeking to eliminate the slave system through the back door by subverting it. And the militia were absolutely essential to slave control in the South. No armed militia. The fear of slave revolt was palpable. Yes. All of those founders that I mentioned from Eastern Virginia. Yeah, Virginia. Um, either lived in areas like Madison, where more than 40% of the population were enslaved blacks, or like Washington and George Mason, further east in the Tidewater region, where a majority of the population were enslaved blacks. And those slave owners did not sleep soundly at night, worried about the potential of slave revolts, and the militia patrolled every night to ensure slaves were there where they were supposed to be. They weren't moving between plantations. They weren't gathering. And they didn't have contraband. Contraband included sure. weapons. Right. The control of weapons. That's what we're talking about here. And people, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Professor Carl T. Bogus, who has a new book out, Why Did Madison Write the Second Amendment? And it's largely about militias and what they really are. And, boy, ever since uh, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, Boy, there are militias. People seem, some people seem to be drawn to them, not just from Virginia, but from every place. And a lot of Americans today highly value the tradition of militias. There's this picture, as I'm sure you've heard, that militias were influential in the War of Independence, which was largely in the North. What is the truth? What was their purpose? How effective were they really? And how are militias really southern in nature? It's clear, clarify our historical uh, ignorance, really, about uh, what militias really are in American history. Yeah, so um, there were militias throughout all of the colonies, um, and all able-bodied white males were members, largely. Uh, they were um, largely untrained, mm-hmm. and uh, this was a, this was an era, both the revolutionary era and even the, in the colonial era. Part of that, where there were no police forces, police forces were were unheard of, unknown. Right. Um, and so uh, militia were there uh, to provide um, internal security. Um, and there had been um, there had been revolts and insurrections. Uh, we'll get to slave revolts and slave insurrections, but oh, yeah. even in the north, there had been insurrections. Yes. So. Um, Following the Revolutionary War, there was Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts, for example. Yes. Where former Continental Army soldiers and, and others um, who had gone into debt yes. during the Revolutionary War, and now they're 
farms and other property was, was being foreclosed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted debt relief. Yes. Um, and 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 there was a and there was an there was an insurrection. Indeed. And um, uh, there had been you know insurrections of some type or other in Vermont, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania, and in um, North Carolina. Uh, various types. So the the militia existed for that. They would kind of you know sound the alarm, and yes. and the white males would grab their muskets and assemble and and rush out. Um, and was one it, thing that's yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt, ahead. but was it? My sense was that there was a, a question on the minds of a lot of people: Who is this government working for? The creditors or the debtors? And that's in some of those insurrections. That was kind of what was going on. Yes, that's true. That was certainly the case in Massachusetts. Um, uh, I, I'm in Rhode Island. Rhode Island uh, yeah. uh, famously or infamously <laughs> went the other way. Indeed. And had a had a uh, a very pro debtor monetary policy. And as a result of that, did not join the union for a long time. Didn't even send delegates to the Constitutional Convention. Uh, and, um, but, but, uh, you know, uh, that's the case. One thing that's kind of interesting is how the founders reacted to these insurgencies, uh, particularly Shays Rebellion. Mm-hmm. So you started with, um, Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. And when he was arrested, he was wearing a T-shirt. And um, on the T-shirt, it said, quote, The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Mm-hmm. And that was a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Mm. And Jefferson wrote that line in a letter to James Madison. Um, Jefferson was uh, ambassador to France. We were living, this was pre-Constitution, post-Revolutionary War, pre-United States Constitution, when we were living under the Articles of the Confederation. And he wrote that in response to Shays Rebellion. And when Madison got that letter, he was pretty much infuriated. And he wrote a scathing letter back to Jefferson. And it was Madison's view, and just about every all of the other founders' view, with the exception of Jefferson, who wasn't in the United, you know, wasn't in America at the time, that look, when we had a foreign occupying power, Britain, mm-hmm. and we may have been subject to the British crown, but we had no representation in Parliament, and increasingly British troops in the colonies were viewed as a as a foreign sure. presence, then going to war with an occupying foreign power was one thing. But when we've created our own government and when we have a representative government and you don't like the policy of the government, then your response cannot be violence, your response has to be political. Vote the people out to change policy. Mm. And this view about the tree of liberty has to be refreshed with the blood of patriots and tyrants may have been Jefferson's view or Jefferson's very flippant view until he was told in no uncertain terms by everybody else that is an unacceptable view in a constitutional democracy. Why you don't like government, your response has to be through the political system. I don't know. What, <coughs> excuse me. I don't know why I'm thinking of January. <coughs> Damn. Sorry, I'm going to cut that up. Uh, January 6th, 2021. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People going outside the government, uh, you know, Self-armed, some of them were armed. There were arguments at the time for the federal government arming the militia, and then there were arguments against them 
arming the militia. What were the concerns? I mean, did the states arm their own militias? And, and who, who was to, to arm the militias? So what happened was, the, um, prior to the United States Constitution uh, being ratified in, in, uh, in, in 1788, prior to that, um, the militias had been exclusively creatures of, of the colonies and then of the states. Uh, Virginia had a militia, and North Carolina had a, had a militia, and so did New Hampshire, and so did Massachusetts, and, and, and so did all of the all of the states. The Constitution changed that. It was a radical change, and the Constitution provides Article One, Section Eight, I think it's Clause Sixteen, that um, Congress shall have the power to organize create discipline for, and arm the militia. And the states were empowered to train the militia in accordance with the discipline established by Congress and to appoint officers of the militia. So for the first time in the history in North America, the federal government was going to have the lion's share of power over the militia. The power to organize the militia was the power to organize it any way Congress wanted. Mm-hmm. And the power to create discipline, that's the rules and regulations of the militia, how it's, how it's governed. Mm-hmm. And that was an enormous change, and it was in response to that, during the ratification battles in Virginia, ratification convention in Virginia, whether whether the uh, convention held to determine whether Virginia would ratify the Constitution right. and join the Union, if, if there were sufficient states um, that joined together to ratify it, took, it took um, nine states right. uh, to do that. That's when Patrick Henry and George Mason raised this, this fear that because Congress had the power to arm the militia, that they argued, implied also the power to disarm the militia, uh-huh. and that a increasingly abolitionist Congress, not given the power in the Constitution to abolish slavery, they said, James, you told us that the Constitution doesn't give the national government the power to abolish slavery, and we agree with you. It doesn't, it doesn't have that. Patrick Henry said, they'll search that document for some other way of getting rid of slavery, and here's what they'll find. Hmm. They can disarm our militia. Uh. And this was, this was at a debate in Richmond, Virginia, in June. It took up pretty much the entire month of June, uh, 1788. And Richmond, Virginia is in that tidewater region where the majority of the population mm-hmm. are enslaved blacks. Mm-hmm. The disarmed militia was a fearful, frightful thing. Right. you got to have a militia to keep slavery. That's what they were. They were patrols, as I discovered from reading this book, which is called Madison's yeah. Militia. And we're speaking with its uh, uh, author, Carl Bogus. So it, it was about having the power to... Uh, I mean, there was a lot of fear. Fear is so powerful in government. I mean, it's, it's amazing how much fear there is and how uh, it's manipulated. And one of the reasons yep. one of the reasons that there was this fear is because, as you mentioned, there were parts of Virginia which is really key to adopting uh, the Constitution and to having a federal government at all. Uh, was was fear of a, a slave uprising where there's so many of them as opposed to us, them being, you know, uh, enslaved black people, whites uh, having ownership of them. Something in American history that people are not aware of and have never heard of, Stono, South Carolina. What happened in Stono, South Carolina, and in what ways did that contribute to, to the debate about the right to bear arms, what was the militia's role there? And what about Stono, South Carolina, in the debate about the right to bear arms? 
Yep. Well, so uh, in 1739 in Stono, South Carolina, a little area not far from Charleston, um, an area in which um, eastern South Carolina uh, uh, saves constituted majority population. Early, early one morning, probably before sunrise, uh, a number of slaves broke into a store that a store and warehouse uh, that had all kinds of things, but among them muskets. Uh, they broke in. They, they, there were two white men in there. Why those two white men were there at that hour is unknown, but the slaves killed them and took the weapons. And as dawn came up, uh, began to march down the road with others, calling out for other slaves to join a rebellion. And they, they marched under banners that said liberty. Uh, they had drums. Uh, they called out. And they grew to a size of somewhere between 60 and 100 slaves. Um, they raided plantations and killed the slave owners and their families in a number of plantations. They were rather selective, by the way, about who they raided and who they thought were maybe deserved to live and they didn't raid. Um, I think that, I think they knew that they weren't going to have a successful revolution and 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 take over South Carolina. And some people think that they had, they wanted to get to northern Florida where was controlled by the Spanish, where there was a, actually a, an area, a village, a town that was, um, uh, inhabited by former slaves mm -hmm. that were free. But I, I don't think that that was the case either because it was 200 miles away. And, mm -hmm. and if they wanted to get there, mm -hmm. they would not have been, been, beating drums and taking their time to to invade uh, plantations and kill people, they would have hidden yeah. and and tried to get as quickly as possible there. So I think what they were doing was let's kill as many white slave owners as we can and die free. I think that's what it was. It was a it was a large suicide mission, but it was an insurrection. It was a revolt. You know, perhaps by, I mean, sacrificing themselves. And as you say, obviously a suicide mission. Maybe they'd inspire uh, their enslaved brethren. I don't know. Yes, yes. No question. Yes, I, I, I think that, the, you know, that would be the case. But I think what this sent the message was slaves are capable of this. Yes. They're capable of, of large collective action to strike back and kill us. Maybe they can't take over Virginia, but they can sure kill a lot of us. That's what people were terrified of. And here's why, here's what happened with this. It's quite interesting. South Carolina was terrified of slave revolts prior to this. And they had just enacted a law. And the law said, Militiamen will take muskets with them to church on Sunday. Mm. And why? The reason militiamen took muskets with them to church on Sunday in South Carolina was that was a, an opportune time for a slave revolt when, when people were away oh, at wow. church. And what they wanted was they wanted the militia armed in, at church. And so what actually happened is as this slave insurrection, 60 to 100 slaves were marching down the road, they happened to be observed, coincidentally, by the lieutenant governor of the state, who had actually been one of the leading politicians in South Carolina concerned about slave revolts. And he saw, he saw this revolt in progress. And he rode to the local church where militiamen were armed. And they went to other churches. And the militia assembled very rapidly <laughs> and extinguished that rebellion by the end of the day. 
Lots of people died on both sides. Both slave owners, families, right. militiamen, and rebels died that day. But that was, that stuck in everybody's mind, this can happen. Uh-huh. And if it doesn't get extinguished quickly, how big could it get? And how many white people could be slaughtered by revolting slaves? Everybody in the South lived in terror of that constantly. And I can imagine that inspiring uh, people wanting a right to be armed, an individual, or at least a militia, right to be armed, that fear of slave revolt, of, of frankly justified uh, anger, uh, and that, that would... Uh, yeah, and, and knowing that it can happen, I'm reminded a little bit of the uh, great mythical moment in history. The British are coming. Well, the slaves are coming. The word spread quickly. And I do find it fascinating. You know, it, it, we, we're all familiar with the term policeman's beat these days. Yeah. <laughs> How did that come to be? Just a quick one on that. Yeah. So what happened was, uh, as we talked about, uh, there were slave patrols every night, uh, organized by the militia. Uh, little asterisk there, uh, actually organized by the court system in North Carolina, not the militia, although it was militiamen who were doing it. Whoa. Uh, but in Virginia and South Carolina and Georgia organized by the militia. And there were these, there were these patrols, these armed patrols every night to ensure that the slaves were where they were supposed to be and uh, unarmed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the, there were these small groups doing, doing these um, patrols, and that was called the beat. They had a particular area that they would patrol, it was called the beat. And that's where the policeman's beat, the term the beat, policeman's beat comes from. And uh, it's also where the term patrol, police patrol, comes uh, from. Mm. You say the idea of a right to bear arms did not originate at the Richmond, Virginia Convention. It can be traced back to the English Declaration of Rights in 1688. Huh? How is that the genesis and motivation of a right to bear arms in America today? Nobody knows about that. Yeah, well, that was the... um the original codification of a um, a right to bear arms, and um, it's kind of um, often misrepresented. Mm. Uh, what the Declaration of Rights said was that the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense, suitable to their condition, and as allowed by law. And why was that adopted? That's the, that's the origin of any right to, in, in the Western world, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a, a right having to do with uh, arms. Uh, the Declaration of Rights of 1689, following the, the Glorious Revolution of 1688, and here's what happened. There was a king, and uh, the king was a Catholic, James II. And um, it was insanity because um, England was a Protestant nation. Uh, only 2% of the population were Catholics, and the, and the, and the population in Britain mistrusted uh, Catholics. They thought that the, the Catholics were always uh, wanted to, to um, yeah. reestablish control over over England. Mm-hmm. And um, James II uh, started to actually kind of have a program, an insane program, to try to do that. And he appointed Catholics to be um, officers in the military, which was unlawful. It was unlawful. Parliament's law didn't permit that. There were the test acts. Only Protestants could be officers of the militia or on the faculties of, of Cambridge and Oxford, etc. Hmm. And he, he also started um, to, 
to to disarm uh you know some protestants and um uh-huh. as time went on parliament sent an invitation to uh William of Orange the stadholder of Holland um who was considered the the champion of um, Pro- protestantism right. on the continent and an enemy of um uh, Louis the Fourteenth, who was uh, Catholic king, sure. and um, the invitation was, "Please invade England." This was an invitation for Parliament, basically. Uh, Please invade England, and we'll support you. We got to get rid of this guy, James the Second. And uh, William of Orange did that. Uh, William of Orange uh, also was married to um, one of James's daughters. Uh, so she had royal blood, and there could be a, you know, if, if the crown were vacant, uh, there was a, a good argument she was entitled to the crown. That was one of the reasons they invited William to do this. So making a long story short, William uh, James II fled, and Parliament, they called itself, called it, calling itself a convention because there was a technical problem with sitting as Parliament at this moment, entered into, into negotiations with William of Orange um, under the circumstances that Parliament would give him the crown and make him and or his wife uh, marry uh, king or, or queen or king and queen. And this was all about, these, these negotiations and the Declaration of Rights was all about one thing, and it was... Parliament's prerogatives. James II had ignored and violated laws made by Parliament. And Parliament wanted a commitment from their new monarchs that Parliament's laws would be respected. And now let's just take a look. That all of the declarations and rights had to do with parliamentary prerogatives. And let's just read this one again that the subjects which are Protestants, nobody cared about disarming Catholics, and in fact, while these negotiations were going on, the mayor of London was disarming Catholics, and everybody thought that was a good thing. But I'll start again. <laughs> that the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense, suitable to their condition, I'll stop there for a second, suitable to their condition, Parliament had long made laws as to who could own what weapons. And those laws were status-based. That is, England was a very hierarchical society. And only the aristocrats could own guns. In fact, only about 2% of the population the ability to own guns depended upon your property, how much property you had. Only about 2% of the population could own guns under Parliament's laws. So, that the subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense, suitable to their condition, and here comes the key phrase, and as allowed by law. Parliament makes the law. Parliament will decide among Protestants, who gets to own weapons and who doesn't. And one, one wag once said, this was all about, because the nobility had guns, the guns were used largely for hunting, they hunted on their estates, they didn't want the hoi polloi and other <laughs> people coming on their estates and hunting their game on their land, and some wag said, this was all about protecting pheasants from peasants. Interesting, and I, it, it, as you describe it, 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 it makes me think about you know the, the the gun rights people these days talk about the, the hierarchy of owning of the right to own a gun. That gun ownership is really important. To protecting rights, and I'm, it's interesting that there's that long history. I mean, uh, I, I don't. I mean, 
does the Second Amendment guarantee the right of an individual to own a gun? Uh, Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger said, no, it's a fraud. Uh, but they, they still argue that, and there is a, a lot of history there that, uh, you know, the 2% had in in uh, England had the right to own guns because they were wealthy and had property, but everybody else didn't. And that, that's an interesting uh, background that, uh, you know, I'm not a, a fan of guns or militias, uh, I'll tell you, but uh, just a, it's an interesting history of how we got here. And it, it seems that people who call themselves militia today, uh, they they... One of the things that generally they have in common is a hatred for blacks and for women. And is that is that surprising, or is there a direct line? Yeah, there is. A, I have to say, there is there is a direct line that that you know that that certainly goes back to the slave system and um, uh, this you know the desire to keep uh, blacks enslaved and to Keep these, this, the economy of the South humming along, which was dependent upon right. an enslaved population. Uh, it, it, it certainly um, has roots there. It certainly has roots there. And incidentally, the people who self-deputize themselves as yeah. the militia have nothing to do with the militia that's defined in the Constitution and is controlled. It's under the joint control of the federal and state government, but mostly under the control of the federal government. It is today the National Guard system, and the reason it is is because that's how Congress is organizing. And Congress has the power under the Constitution to organize the militia as it wishes. And so it's, it, it's integrated the militia into the United States Armed Services. It's near the National Guard system. Uh, the militia can be called up to take care of um, internal security matters. If there are riots, if there is a national disaster, the governor can call the National Guard up. But the federal government can call the National Guard up or federalize the National Guard when it wishes. And in that case, the president is the commander-in-chief of the, of, of the National Guard. And We've seen tussles about that before. When um, George Wallace famously stood in the schoolhouse door mm -hmm. and said blacks will not be enrolled here uh, at the University of Alabama, and the commandant of the Alabama National Guard marched up to him and saluted him and said, Governor, um, we have been uh, federalized. Um, uh, the president has uh, has federalized us, um, and you're going to have to step aside, or we'll have to remove you. So that's the real intent of uh, the cre of what is meant by militias. And and you note that in 2008, for the first time ever, the U.S. Supreme Court declared that the Second Amendment grants individuals a right to have guns for their own purposes, entirely divorced. From the militia, how do, yeah. how do you think Madison and his contemporaries, those who created the Second Amendment, how would they have reacted? Well, I think they'd be aghast. <laughs> I think they'd be puzzled and aghast. Um, the Second Amendment reads a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep in Guam shall not be infringed. So one thing is just irrefutable is the right to keep their arms is related to the militia. It's yes. all in one sentence. Yes. <laughs> and they tell us, Madison and the First Congress tell us that this right to bear arms has to do with the militia. Because a militia is necessary to the security of a free state. By the way, somebody in Congress made a motion change that word security to defense. That was defeated. Everybody knew the militia could not defend the nation against an invading professional army. Right. That had been proved decisively during the Revolutionary War. Militia was for internal security. Um, 
the, the founders would be completely befuddled as to, as to where do you read this and come to the conclusion that people have guns for individual self-defense. That's not what it says. It says for um, a militia for security. So they would be aghast. And as you pointed out, Burke, if there had ever been a question of constitutional law that had been deemed settled, it was, what's the Second Amendment about? Mm. And from the beginning of the Republic until 2008, the consensus, in fact, prior to 1960, it was not just a consensus, it was the unanimous view among all legal scholars who had ever written on the subject, and until 2005, if I got the year correct, um, it had been the unanimous view of the federal courts based on three Supreme Court cases that the Second Amendment only granted a right to keep their arms within the government militia. The, the militia set forth in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution organized by Congress. Mm -hmm. It was only in 2008 that the Supreme Court, reversing two centuries of precedent, said, oh, no, it's got nothing to do with the militia. Uh, it, the, the, uh, the core of the right is to give individuals a right to self-defense. Mm. Justices who claim to be textualists. Yeah. We look at the text first and foremost. Boy, it's amazing. And there are a few problems with guns these days. And your book, you conclude with this observation, no, Madison, neither Madison nor his contemporaries could po have possibly foreseen 21st century ramifications of their work. What do you think they'd say, seeing what we now have? I think they would see us hopelessly confused about what liberty and freedom is all about. Uh, living in a society where we have mass shootings pretty much every day, mass shootings of all kinds of people and children yeah. every day, yeah. I don't think that they would see that as a, as a society that's got freedom and liberty. Well, interesting. History, uh, it'd be nice if people actually learned from history, but one thing I've learned from history is that we hardly ever learn from history. Carl Bogus, thank you so much for being with us today. The book is Madison's Militia, The Hidden History of the Second Amendment, and it's put out by Oxford Press. Thank you so much for being with us today. May we learn from history. Thank you. Thanks, Bert. Enjoyed our conversation. Well, here's one angle. I bought a cold 45 today. Swung the holster around my waist and nothing felt so right. And having that baby sitting on my side. Showed my buddy at the range. She said, man, she's sweet. What's her name? I fired around, felt the kick. I was like a proud pair of David, one of the kids. Her name is Freedom. And here's another angle. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to... Also, subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and, of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.